Well, I have to uh, make sure to set a timer because you guys uh, want to get out on time this morning, right? I was really encouraged as I'm standing in the front row just listening to all the voices singing about the awesomeness of our God and how all we have is Christ. It's the theme of our church, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. And Pastor Patrick has preached through the book of Philippians, and and we've heard that over and over and over again. And as we come through the end of this season of Thanksgiving, it's, it's been so good to just be able to sit and ponder and meditate and reflect on the goodness of our God, on how awesome he is. Contrary to the Lego movie, not everything is awesome. Only God is awesome. And that is the God that we want to look at this morning. And that's the God that we want to worship. And that's the God that we want to hear speak to us through his word this morning. Last week, Pastor Patrick preached on Psalm 69 and concluded with three things that Thanksgiving produces. Do you remember what those three things are? It produces a magnifying of God to his rightful size in my mind and heart. It is also your own magnified image and vision of God compels you to tell others about him. And thirdly, others then begin to magnify God in their own hearts. Have you been able to do that this past week? How about on Thursday, on Thanksgiving Day? Were you able to do that and give God thanks for all of the many blessings that he's given you? How about Friday? We call that what day? Black Friday, right? It's interesting, isn't it, coming on the heels of the day of Thanksgiving, how our society and how the business world has made a day after gratitude and Thanksgiving of almost creating greed as a virtue. You've got to go to the sales. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to do these other things. And I'm not saying that if you participated in Black Friday, because I did, is bad, I got my 99-cent poinsettias at Home Depot at 5 o'clock in the morning. Oh, shh, sorry. I wasn't supposed to leak the price, just in case you receive one. <laughs> Black Friday can be a lot of fun also, if you stay within your budget. And as I was at Family Christian Store drooling at all of the books and the DVDs and the CDs and all those kinds of things, another gentleman and I were having this conversation of, oh, man, I've got, my hands are full. It's time to leave. I've got to stay within my budget. Because there's something about stuff that causes us to want more stuff. And that produces in us not thanksgiving, but idolatry. Radical selfishness or what I would term selfiness, is illustrated by what's posted on social media platforms all over the world. People have made themselves into their own gods. And you see it everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, MySpace, Facebook, whatever other social media platform there is out there. It's all over the place. And they're living out the reality of Romans 1. Romans 1, Paul writes in verse 22, he says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. These same people are also described by Paul just a few verses later in verses 28 on through 32. He says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Why? Why is our society like this? In a word, sin. Right? Sin. But Paul gives another insight into that sin. Go back to verse 20. He says, For since the creation of the world... 
His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God and did not honor him as God or, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. I would submit to you that lack of thankfulness of God towards God, towards what he has done and who he is, leads to a society like ours today. It's seen in the scientific world. It's seen in the academic world. It's seen in high school and college campuses. It's seen in the socio-political climate of our day. It's seen everywhere. This lack of thankfulness leads to a promotion of the secular agenda. And not just a promotion of it, but then you have to tolerate it. But then you can't just tolerate it. You have to participate in it. And participation really isn't enough because now you have to celebrate it, even if you disagree with it. Why? All because a lack of thankfulness to God leads to idolatry. Last week, we saw how David struggled with thanksgiving because of his circumstances. Turn back over to Psalm 69, just for a second. I want to look at a couple of verses there. David struggled with thanksgiving because of his circumstances, which led him to pray, which then naturally led him back to thanksgiving. Verses 30 to 36 of Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with with horns and hooves. And he goes on to continue to extol and magnify and thank the Lord. David also tells us that there really are only two types of people in the world. And we had the privilege of looking at this on Thanksgiving Eve on Wednesday last week in our Thanksgiving Eve service over at Carrie's house from Psalm 35. David writes this in Psalm 35, verses 26 and 27. He says, Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, The Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant." There are two types of people, those who magnify themselves and those who magnify God. Again, going back, tying back into Psalm 69, verse 30. Giving of thanks to God for all of his miraculous works, including your salvation, which is in and of itself a miracle, is evidence of your salvation. John MacArthur said this, Thanksgiving should be more than just a holiday. It should be your lifestyle. Ligonier Ministries tweeted a quote by R.C. Sproul on Thanksgiving Day, and uh, R.C. Sproul says this, The more we understand God's sovereignty, the more our prayers will be filled with thanksgiving. The more we understand God's sovereignty, the more our prayers will be filled with thanksgiving. And Burke Parsons, who is the co-pastor of St. Andrew's Chapel in uh, Orlando, Florida, with R.C. Sproul, tweeted this. He's also the editor of Table Talk Magazine. Just a, a plug for that. If you don't have a devotional, get Table Talk magazine. It's phenomenal. But Burke Parsons tweeted this. Ungratefulness is the first step toward idolatry. We've been talking about contentment. We've been talking about living for Christ and dying to ourselves. We've been talking about thankfulness. We've been talking about magnifying God in the previous weeks. All leading up to understanding what this idolatry is. Paul saw this idolatry firsthand in Athens on his second missionary journey. He saw it all around him. The God of the Bible is the God of the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In order to truly understand and believe the gospel, you must believe in the God of the Bible. You cannot be ignorant of who he is. If you do not believe in the God of the Bible, 
and give him thanks, you do not truly trust in that God for salvation. Nor do you trust in the gospel. You might agree with it. You might believe it's true. But your trust is somewhere else. Today I want to show you three attributes of the God of the gospel so that you can trust in him for salvation and give him thanks. We're going to show you, we're going to look at three attributes that Paul taught about and preached about on Mars Hill in Athens about the God of the gospel so that they could trust in him for salvation and by extension so that we can trust in him for salvation and give him thanks. But before we get to that text, we need to set the stage. We need to understand the historical context. We've talked about this a little bit in in our family Bible hour. We need to understand the setting. We need to understand who is talking, who the recipients are, who the speaker is. We need to set the stage for this sermon. So in Acts 17, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts 17 because we're going to be here in our launching point and all over the Scripture as Paul preaches a sermon. It's always interesting to prepare a sermon on a sermon that's already been preached. And that's exactly what this is. In Acts 17, we have Paul and Silas on this second missionary journey. You remember that Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey. They took along a young man named John Mark. He abandoned them during that journey, and then Paul and Barnabas continued on and went back to Jerusalem to report about their first missionary journey. While they were in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas decided, let's go on a second missionary journey and reestablish contact with all of these churches that we've planted, and let's make sure that we encourage these saints. And Paul said, that's a great idea, Barnabas. Barnabas said, oh, and by the way, let's bring John Mark with us. And what did Paul say? No way. He bailed on us. He did not stay the course. I cannot have him with us. He's a flake. And there was such a sharp disagreement between the two of them. What happened? They split. Barnabas took John Mark and went his way. And Paul took Silas and went his way. Now we're also told later on in Paul's life that ultimately there was some form of a reconciliation between he and John Mark because ultimately John Mark became very useful to Paul in ministry, and he tells us that in Timothy and in other places. But here we have Paul and Silas. They go to Thessalonica, and they get into the area, and they they find the synagogue. This is Paul's M.O. This is what he does. He goes into a new city. He finds the synagogue because he wants to go to the Jews first. He spends three weeks in that synagogue with the Jews talking to them about Jesus from the Old Testament. He's opening up the scriptures to them. He's reasoning with them from the Old Testament about the fact that Jesus was the Christ. Some of them were persuaded. Many were not. Ultimately, Paul and Silas got run out of Thessalonica. We're not told in this text exactly what passages Paul used. Maybe he used Psalm 22 a passage that was written about a thousand years before Jesus' birth by David that describes the crucifixion of the Messiah. He could have quoted Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. He could have used Zechariah 12, another passage that talks about how this Messiah is going to come and reign, essentially. Ultimately, though, he had to get out of Thessalonica. They ran him out of town, and he ends up going to another place called Berea. And we see that in Acts 17, verses 5 to 15. It shouldn't surprise us, the reaction of these Jews in Thessalonica, wanting to get Paul out of there. Because isn't that the reaction of so many people toward the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ as the only way into God's kingdom? So they end up in Berea. They go to the synagogue. Again, that's what Paul does. And they open the scriptures. Thankfully, the Berean church or the Berean people there, the Berean Jews, were receiving the word with great eagerness and they searched the scriptures daily. They wanted to know whether or not Paul was truly teaching them the truth. So they opened up the scriptures and they looked at what Paul was saying for themselves. And they saw that what Paul was saying out of the Old Testament, out of the Hebrew scriptures, was absolutely true. Well, when word got back down to Thessalonica, those Thessalonian Jews couldn't allow Paul to continue to spread what they thought was a cancer. 
And they went to Thessalonica, incited the people, I'm sorry, to Berea, and they incited the people there, and ultimately Paul had to get out of Berea as well. So he goes on, and he goes into Athens. And now we see Paul in Athens in verse 16. Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. And as he was there, his heart, his soul was being provoked within him. Because all he saw everywhere were evidence of idolatry. Evidence of idolatry. He went to the synagogue. Again, this is what Paul does. He went to the synagogue and he found the Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles there and he began to reason with them from the scriptures. He also went to the Agora, to the marketplace, and he reasoned with them as well. As he was there in the marketplace and as he was reasoning from the scriptures, some Stoic and Epicurean philosophers began to talk to him. Now, you've got to ask yourself, who are these guys? Epicurean, Stoic philosophers? What are these Well, the Epicureans advocated and defended a life based on sensual pleasures. They wanted to enjoy life to the fullest, and so that's what they pursued. The Stoics, on the other hand, viewed life as something to be mastered, and they took pride in their successes. If they failed, suicide was a legitimate option. Here are two extreme groups within the variety of people at Athens that Paul is interacting with. And how did Paul relate to them? He related to them from Scripture. He didn't appeal to them philosophically. He didn't appeal to them scientifically. He didn't appeal to them morally. He appealed to them from Scripture. So, as we come to this text, we need to ask a couple of questions. What did Paul say? Why did he say it with that way? Why did he say it that way? And then ultimately, why did they laugh him out of the Areopagus? Why did they laugh him off of Mars Hill? With these three questions in mind, we're going to see the three attributes of the God of the gospel that Paul revealed to these men so that you can trust in him for salvation and give him thanks. And these three attributes are God as creator, God as sustainer, and God as savior. This is a nice, solid three-point outline, and just like any good preacher, a three-point outline needs three sub-points per point. So we're going to have lots of things to cover this morning in this outline. We're going to look at God as creator, God as sustainer, and God as savior. First, God as creator. Look at Acts 17, verses 22 to 24. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul starts off his acknowledgement and his revelation of this unknown God of the Athenians by literally going to the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where Paul starts. He starts with God as creator. He starts with God revealed in Scripture. The psalmist in Psalm 146 Verses 5 and seven, five through 7 says, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who execute justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. This psalmist also acknowledges the God of creation. Paul had an intimate knowledge of Genesis, of the Pentateuch, of the law. He had an intimate knowledge of the Psalms and would later write a letter to the Colossian church also talking about Jesus as creator. And as a result of this knowledge, he reveals to the men on Mars Hill three aspects of God's act of creating. The first aspect he wants to show them is the omnipotence of God as creator. 
the omnipotence of God as creator. Now, omnipotence is a fancy theological term. Literally, all it means is all-powerful. That's what it is. God is able to do all by his holy will. God will do what he decides to do. That's it. And in verse 24, Paul tells us, God made the world and all things in it. The Greek term for world here is cosmos or cosmos. We get our English word cosmos. It's just a a, a transliteration. This signifies the world arranged in an orderly fashion, something that these Athenians were very well aware of. And they loved the world. Isaiah has much to say about this as well. In Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 9, he says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. The Lord alone is the God of creation, not any idol or anything else that could have been created. Obviously, Paul is remembering also in Exodus, in the Pentateuch, in the law. Exodus 20, verse 11. Remember, you're going to work for six days, and on the seventh day, you're going to take a Sabbath day or a rest day. In verse 11, he says, for in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth. Six literal 24-hour days. God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The angel of the Lord asked that question of Abraham and Sarah when Sarah laughed after overhearing that she was going to conceive a son at the age of 90. Genesis 18, verse 14. Jeremiah the prophet was also asked the same question by God himself in Jeremiah 32, 27. Thankfully, Jeremiah correctly acknowledged earlier in the passage that nothing is too hard for you. You see that in Jeremiah 32, 17. So let me ask you, do you believe that God who is revealed, who, do you believe that God is who he reveals himself to be according to the scripture, the maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe that anything is too hard for God? Do you believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis as they stand written, understanding them as literally and historically, a literal and historical accurate account of the creation of the heavens and the earth? Do you believe that? Is anything too hard for the Lord? If you reject this account, what do you believe about God? Have you even thanked him for his creation? Or have you made him into your own imaginary image based upon a finite knowledge of science and philosophy? God is the omnipotent, all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. The next thing that Paul reveals to us, also in verse 24, is the sovereignty of God. So not only is God omnipotent, he is also sovereign. And we see the sovereignty of God over creation. And you see it there in the phrase, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. God's sovereignty extends to the exercise of power over his creation. This acknowledges his right to have total control and authority over that which he created. Back in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were in prison and they got released by the Sanhedrin. And Peter and John's statement about God's sovereignty upon being released by the Sanhedrin gives God the credit as creator. 
return back to Psalm 146. Psalm 146, again, we're going to pick up in verse 8. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Wayne Grudem comments on God's sovereignty this way, and it's very helpful. God has made us as creatures with a will. We exercise choice and make real decisions regarding the events of our lives. Although our will is not absolutely free in the way God's is, God has nonetheless given us relative freedom within our spheres of activity in the universe he has created. We have to acknowledge that. But understand also that sin has tainted our ability to use our will correctly. And unfortunately, at times, we wrestle with this. Paul resonates about this problem in Romans 7. This struggle between the flesh and the spirit. So, how will you use the relative freedom of your will? Will you use it in thanksgiving or in idol-making? The third aspect that Paul considers in God's act of creating is his immensity. We see the immensity of God outside of creation. And this is the third part of verse 24. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He sits outside of time and space. God is greater than time and without extension in space, and yet he created both things. Again, we go to Isaiah. He helps us see this so clearly. Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 17, says this. Who has measured the waters? God is he who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the the heavens by the span. Put your hand out in front of you. Cup your hand. That little thing right there in the middle of your palm That's the hollow of your hand. Now, spread your hand way out. And from thumb to pinky finger, that's the span. God holds the universe right there. He's calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Did you know that scientists, they state that you cannot measure the grains of sand on the earth. They are immeasurable by our human standards of measurement. We can't do it. And yet God has done that. God has numbered them. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. That is the God of salvation. That is the God of creation. That is the immensity of this God, of our God, of the God of the Bible in relation to his creation. Verses 21 to 26 continue on declaring who this God is. Look at verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in it. And he just goes on and on with these magnificent views of who God is. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord. This is the Lord himself stating, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place 
that I may rest. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. God's omnipotence, sovereignty, and immensity in creation is clearly seen in God's conversation with Job, especially in Job 38 through 41. And this is a a fun passage to read. If you've never read it, spend some time today reading Job 38 through 41. And you can see how God reveals himself to Job. And I love what God says right out of the beginning. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Really, Job? You're going to tell me something that I don't already know? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. And then just God just peppers Job with question after question after question. And look at Job's response to this whole conversation at the end of Job, in Job chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Wouldn't it be great if men and women of science would do this very thing, thinking that they know it all already and that they've got it all figured out, but that they would realize, wow, in God's omnipotence, in his sovereignty, in his immensity, I need to repent of what I have done and what I have believed about God. If you do not believe in the God of creation, you need to follow Job's example And repent and believe. Now, not only is God creator, but he is also the sustainer. Number two, God is the sustainer of his creation. And Paul reveals to these Athenians three ways in which God sustains his creation. In verses 25 and 26. Look at these verses. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Three ways in which God sustains his creation. The first way, number one, is his independence. His independence. He is independent of it. In theology, God's independence is known as aseity. That's a fancy word. You spell it A-S-E-I-T-Y. It comes from a Latin phrase meaning from himself. In other words, all God needs is himself. He doesn't need anything else. Wayne Grudem says, again, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet, we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. Look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15 says this. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He cares about his creation. He cares about his people. He wants a relationship with them. Psalm 50 Verses 10 through 12. Asaph, the psalmist, writes this. For every beast of the forest is mine. This is God speaking. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains 
and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. He needs, he has everything he needs. He doesn't need us. And yet some have at times incorrectly thought that God created man because he was lonely and needed fellowship. If that were true, it would mean that God is not completely independent of creation. It would mean that God would need to create persons in order to be completely happy or completely fulfilled in his personal existence. Yet scripture says something completely different. You remember when Jesus prayed before he went to the cross, before he went out to Gethsemane in John 17? He prays a couple of phrases. There's a couple of phrases that are very important to hear. In John 17, verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is Jesus literally exposing his preeminence and his eternality to his disciples. That he preexisted the world. That he coexisted eternally with God the Father in eternity past. And in that fellowship, there was a perfect unity in that fellowship. Later on in this prayer, he prays that same thing. He says, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Among the persons of the Trinity, there has been perfect love and fellowship and communication for all eternity. There is a giving of glory by the members of the Trinity to one another that far surpasses any bestowal of glory that could ever be given to God by all of creation. God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not determined or dependent on anyone or anything else. Even without creation, God would still be infinitely loving, infinitely just, eternal, omniscient, Trinitarian, and all the other attributes that Scripture reveals about him. God is qualitatively and quantitatively different from us, and yet he has determined that we and the rest of creation would be meaningful to him. in that we can glorify him and bring him joy through thanksgiving. The Westminster Catechism asks a bunch of questions. And question number one sets up the entire rest of that catechism. And question number one is, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose in life? What is the meaning of life? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper's understanding of this reality expresses and reveals a depth of knowledge of who God is and how man ought to interact with him. And John Piper says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Look at Isaiah 62, verses 3 through 5. Isaiah 62, verses 3 through 5. This is talking about God and how he interacts with his people like a bride and a bridegroom. In Isaiah 62, Isaiah writes, You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Isn't that reassuring? Isn't that good to hear in the midst of this generation, in the midst of all that is going on now, that God cares? And in the end, we're going to be joined as a bride and a bridegroom together in perfect unity. So even though he is independent of his creation, he cares for his creation. 
Not only is God independent of his creation, but secondly, he is eternally controlling it. He is eternally controlling his creation. Again, that phrase in verse 25, he says, Since he himself gives to all life, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Theologically, this is the idea of providence. Providence. Again, Wayne Grudem is very helpful, helping us understand God's providence. He says, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. So that is God's providence. Isaiah, again, is, is just absolutely incredibly helpful. There are so many passages in Isaiah that talk about God's providence that we're not going to be able to go through all of them, but I want to read one. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 through 9. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Isaiah 43, 1-7. Isaiah 44, 1 and following. Isaiah 45, 1 and following. Isaiah 46, 9-11. And on and on it goes in this section of Isaiah, revealing God's providence. Robert Culver, in his systematic theology quotes a letter written by a man named Athenagoras. Culver says Athenagoras was an Athenian philosopher who had embraced Christianity and wrote a plea for Christians, which was presented to the emperors Aurelius and Commodus about A.D. 177. So he, he also says, he is competently judged one of the ablest of the early Christian apologists. So here is a man who lived in Athens 130 years or so after Paul, that understood what Christians were being accused of at that time. They were accused of being atheists because they worshipped an invisible God. They didn't worship a dumb idol. And this is what he says, that we are not atheists, therefore, seeing that we acknowledge one God, uncreated, eternal, invisible, impassable, incomprehensible, unlimited, who is apprehended by the understanding only and the reason, who is encompassed by light and beauty and spirit and power ineffable, by whom the universe has been created through his logos and set in order and is kept in being. He goes on to talk about this Trinitarian aspect of God, and he talks about the Son as the logos, and then he ends this extended quote, By saying this, nor is our teaching in what relates to the divine nature confined to these points. But we recognize also a multitude of angels and ministers whom God, the maker and framer of the world, distributed and appointed to their several posts by his logos to occupy themselves about the elements and the heavens and the world and the things in it and the goodly ordering of them all. So even Back in the second century, this understanding that God's providence was in total control of everything was clearly seen in these Christian apologists. He said exactly the same thing Paul did on Mars Hill. God sustains his creation through his independence of it, his eternal control of it, and the reality that, number three, he is ruler over it. He is ruler over it. Look at verse 26 in Acts 17. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The Athenians liked to think that they were special because they believed that they were made from the dirt right there in Athens and that that gave them some kind of a superiority complex, that they were better than all of the other barbarians around them. And what Paul is saying here, uh, no, you're all the same because there's only one race. It is the human race. And you're part of that human race because God made Adam and from Adam everybody distributed. Go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Only the ruler of creation can convey his authority over what he has created to another person or to another co-regent or another ruler. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. God was in charge when he set up all of this structure that we see in the world today. And Psalm 74, verse 17. The psalmist writes, You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Again, acknowledging that God rules his creation. There are so many other places we could go to talk about God's ruling over his creation. How about Genesis 6 through 9, the flood narrative? God dispenses judgment on his created world as the ruler of it, saving eight persons out of how many billions were on the planet at that time? Or Genesis 11, 1 through 9, God as ruler disperses the people into language groups in order to form nations. Or Exodus 14, God as ruler saves one people group while destroying another as he parts the Red Sea for Israel and then closes it on Pharaoh and his army. Or how about Joshua 3? As ruler of creation, he parts the Jordan River to allow his people to enter the promised land, the land that they are about to possess. How about Joshua 10? As ruler of creation, he causes the sun to stand still for Joshua so that he would be able to complete the battle against the Amorites. Or in 1 Kings 17, the ruler of creation stops the rain on Israel for three years according to his will at the word of his servant Elijah. There are so many more illustrations in Scripture to demonstrate just how God rules over his creation and confounds the principles of science. Principles of thermodynamics, relativity, quantum mechanics, and on and on it goes, let alone evolution. And Paul would write a letter to the Colossian church explaining just how this is done. And in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, he says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is God, very God. He is preeminent over all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and listen to this, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together in Christ. When Christ lets go, when God lets go, 
guess what's going to happen to what we have here and now in his creation? The elements are going to melt with intense heat. It's going to be the biggest thermonuclear explosion of all time. We see pictures of the bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We see pictures of the testing that done, done in Nevada of the atom bombs. That's nothing compared to what is going to happen when God decides to let go of his creation. Well, Paul has clearly demonstrated to the Athenians on Mars Hill that God is creator, he is the sustainer, and you're going to have to come back in February to hear part number three. God is Savior. We're going to have to hold off on this last point for another time because there is so much to understand about God as Savior that I don't want to rush through it. I want to spend some time and help you to understand how we see God as Savior from the Old Testament. How the Old Testament points to the New Covenant. How the Old Testament reveals God as our Savior. Will you give thanks today for God as creator and sustainer of his creation? Father, we thank you that you are our God, that you are our creator, given us life in six literal days, creating everything that we see here on the earth because nothing is too hard for you. You are omnipotent in your creation. You have done everything for your purpose, for your holy will. You are an amazing, awesome God. And we love you for that.